forthright, but also full of grace. That could be a mantra for how we should all live our lives. It's also how Jackie Patterson has described her ideal as she fights for environmental justice in a world that can feel like it's submerged completely in environmental injustice. From the south side of Chicago to Jamaica to South Louisiana after Hurricane Katrina, Jackie has continually asked what deep transformative change looks like. She grounds her theory of change in community-led advocacy. She envisions a world of eco-communities and works with real communities around the country who've already created elements of these utopian visions. But never does she lose sight of climate change and environmental exploitation as multipliers of injustice. For example, if a child is having a hard time paying attention in school because lead and manganese are some of the toxins that come out of these these smokestacks, or if a child is, is not able to go to school on poor air quality days, or if the school, 71% of African Americans live in counties in violation of air pollution standards, and an African American family making $50,000 a year is more likely to live next to a toxic facility than a white American family making $15,000 a year. And we know that on average, uh, if you're living next to a toxic facility, you're uh, property values are significantly lower, and property values uh, go directly into funding our school system. So if you have all of these challenges with being in school in the first place, learning in school, and then the school itself doesn't have the level of quality of other schools, then um, studies show that if you're not on grade level by the third grade, you're more likely to enter into the school-to-prison pipeline. I'm John Fiege, and this is Chrysalis. Jackie Patterson directed the Environmental and Climate Justice Program at NAACP from 2009 to 2021. Most recently, she is founder and executive director of the Chisholm Legacy Project, a resource hub for black frontline climate justice leadership. I've had the great privilege of knowing Jackie for the last few years, and she's an advisor on my current documentary film and post-production called Raising Anaya. In our conversation, Jackie discusses the origins of the environmental justice movement and the importance of community-led activism. And she charts her path to a life devoted to the struggle for environmental justice. Here is Jackie Patterson. You grew up on the south side of Chicago. Could you start by talking a bit about the neighborhood where you grew up? how that shaped you and, you know, being in an urban environment, how you viewed your relationship to the rest of nature? Yeah, growing up on the south side of Chicago, in an area where it was, there was lots of, of trees, there was lots of, uh, I was just talking with someone yesterday about how how we would get excited when we would see a blue jay or a robin in mm. our in our trees. There were mm-hmm. squirrels. There was an occasional rabbit, which was very exciting. <laughs> and um, and there was a lot. Like summers were all about being outside. Um, winters were moderately about being outside. <laughs> in if if there were snow. <laughs> exactly, only in the snow. Um, and otherwise, it was being huddled inside and. Um, and at the same time, there was the other side to being to being born and raised on the south side of Chicago, which is that it was uh, 
a gangland area with uh, the Black Peastone Nation and the El Rookins as the, the the main gangs and and the pressure on boys to to affiliate and the 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 gunshots you would hear the challenges you would have so being outside was also challenged by that as well I mean it didn't I don't I remember it being kind of a constant thing but I don't remember it necessarily meaning that we didn't go outside but I do remember a couple of times where where uh, where there were times when there were kind of um, fights or so forth and we would be inside. So took put, my dad was from Jamaica, so we took a trip. We went to the park often, and my dad was definitely big on the outdoors, and so we would go to the park frequently, both our local park as well as uh, sometimes going to a national park to, to hike. Oh, awesome. And, um, you know, we... That, that must impact your view of what the environment is, too. When you, you know, you see the birds and the trees and the, those beautiful tree-lined streets of south side of Chicago. And at the same time, there's this, like, this potentially dangerous environment you're dealing with sometimes as well. Yes, it definitely, definitely makes it a, a mixed situation. It um, reminds me of when I was at a conference of the Power Shift Network. I was moderating a panel with youth and and this person who was on the panel, I mean, it was a real striking and moving moment because the person who was on the panel stood up and she said, you know, I would, like for me being, you know, I would love to be able to have the luxury to go to the park and so forth. But for me, just surviving was the objective. And and if I could get beyond just focusing on survival to be able to go to the park, you know, that would be a good, good day. And she actually started crying while she was saying that because oh, wow. I think it was such an emotional moment to be attacked about the very thing that, you know, about the very thing that that kind of uh, puts in stark relief the difference in realities and and uh, what's what's kind of normal to other people would be a luxury to her. And survival survival is a prerequisite for enjoying the world. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Well, not not only is your father from Jamaica, but you spent time in the Peace Corps in Jamaica. Um, yes, which, which I find really I find so interesting because not many Peace Corps volunteers work in a country so close to their roots. Can you can you tell me about the path this this young girl from the south side of Chicago took to Jamaica and and how that experience influenced you? Yeah, sure. Um I had I grew up uh, grew up very active in the church. We'd be in the church like 5 days out of the week um during the summer and um and during the winter uh this at least a couple of times weekly when during the summer. So I was always a Sunday school teacher. And during the summer, I was a vacation Bible school teacher. And um, and as I decided on my career path, I decided I wanted to be a teacher. And so, and then I was watching TV one day and saw this commercial about the shortage of special education teachers. Mm. And I thought, oh, I could do that. <laughs> and I decided to, to do that as well. And so, so after I uh, I mean, long story short, I mean, I was in Boston going to school for undergrad at Boston University, and it was 
And that was when I first started to really get involved around social justice because I was working at a shelter for homeless, for people who are unhoused um, in, in Boston, and then also at the same time getting involved in the housing now movement there. Anyway, then I fast forward to deciding after I graduated to go to Peace Corps, what was interesting there in terms of the tie between me going to Peace Corps and a place that I know is that Jamaica is known was the, the the recruiter was telling me that Jamaica was I had actually wanted to go to a place that where I could learn Spanish or French mm. or some mm. other language, you know. Right, right. And um and so she but she really put a hard uh pressure on me to go to Jamaica because it has a high rate of attrition of people dropping out. And um and so she also needed like someone who was kind of specialized in special education. And it's a little bit at the, back then it was almost rare to be able to do something that's so aligned with your actual career. I'd, like there was someone there in my group who was a drama major in school and she ended up being a banana extension extension officer and with the agriculture <laughs> department. So um that oh, was kind of funny. So anyway, she said <laughs> Yeah, so all of that is what led to me being in in Jamaica. Um what did you see there and experience that you can connect with what you did later, you know, what you're doing now and what you did later with your work? Yeah, so a couple of things. One is as a special education teacher in the, in the parish of St. Thomas, one um one one situation arose where there was a whole group of three-year-olds who had hearing impairments because you know, a little bit over 3 years ago, almost 4 years ago, they had an outbreak of rubella. And I guess when a mom has rubella, then it's more likely for her child to be born with a hearing impairment. And mm. so so I ended up being, because I had taken one sign language class in, in, <laughs> a, under, in a undergrad, I ended up being a sign language teacher to these, these, these parents and their children. It was like a parent-child group. And so helping them to be able to communicate. And so both that and, and other kind of situations of people with special needs there uh, who who were differently abled was just struck me in terms of being a systemic a systemic issue kind of people not having either choices and not having resources to live a thriving life um in those circumstances of being differently abled made me really think about the um prevention aspect you know um and so i i started to, to i decided i was going to come back and go into um into public health and also do a, a double degree, one in public health on the technical side of things, as well as one in social work, but macro level social work to learn about community organizing. Because at that point, point mm. it was just clear the importance of community voice, community power, community leadership. Parallel or, you know, at the same time, I was also kind of in Jamaica, just observing the circumstances in terms of you know what led there to be not the resources to have to have the rubella vaccine when a in a place that is so beautiful so so much um possibility for people to be able to to uh 
to have the the uh, whether it's the natural resources to eat or the natural resources to 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 um, provide energy for the country and all of these different things, and then also the the natural beauty that attracts you know millions of tourists there with all of the billions of dollars that are coming with with that. And yet we have communities where, you know, people are living in abject poverty. And so, so, so seeing that, watching films like Life and Debt that talked about structural investment programs and then, and then reading books like How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, I started to really understand some of these systemic issues as well. So that was an important kind of politicization. And then the last thing I'll say is also while I was there, I was in a community where the water supply was contaminated by shell oil and the community had to... Um, the community had to uh, to push for for justice in that situation, but it, in that situation, it was definitely a David and Goliath, um, where mm. the community ended up getting as part of the, the, for their settlement a vent uh, a series of ventilated improved pit latrines for the community, as well as some money uh, given to the school for a three R's program. So that was the settlement. <laughs> in, in exchange for billions of dollars worth of oil. And in exchange for having their water supply contaminated, drinking poison for several, right. yeah, I mean, <laughs> whatever long-term illnesses that was, that was causing. So these were the, so these were the things, these are the lessons I learned in my short time in Peace Corps that really kind of all, all contributed to the trajectory of my life since then. I find that so interesting when there's something, there's some short period of time when, in, when you're young and you can find in that period of time so many seeds that germinated later in your life. And, and when you're talking about Jamaica, mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm hearing like all, <laughs> all the elements of your later work. It's so interesting. Yeah, it is fascinating. So I, I've heard you say that climate change is a multiplier of injustice, which mm-hmm. is which is really beautifully succinct. Can can you explain what that means? Absolutely. Um, so both on the on the, the the whole climate continuum, we think about in terms of the drivers of climate change and the impacts of climate change. On the driver's side, you have all of the polluting practices that contribute to the greenhouse gas emissions that drive climate change. And so the fact that you know, that these facilities are disproportionately located in BIPOC communities, whether it's coal plants or or oil and gas refineries or other or fracking or it's even near roadway air pollution and air and the ways that that impacts all of those are disproportionately located in 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 BIPOC communities and also in trash incineration and landfills and so forth and I could name more agricultural like uh, confined animal feeding operations etc so with all of those being disproportionately located in communities of color, it's not only that they're emitting greenhouse gases, but they're all also emitting pollutants that um, that also harm, that compound harm um, to the public health and well-being of those communities. And so, whether it's the sulfur dioxide, nitrogen oxide, which is tied to 
asthma rates in African-American children are three to five times more likely to enter the hospital from an asthma attack, two to three times more likely to die of an asthma attack. Or it is the mercury, which is known as a, which is known to be an endocrine disruptor. And we know that low birth weights, infant mortality, et cetera, are much higher, for example, in African-American communities and beyond. So there's just so many examples of these negative health impacts. But then on top of it all, we talk about multiplier as well. It's a multiplier of a multiplicity of issues. And so, for example, if a child is having a hard time paying attention in school because lead and manganese are some of the toxins that come out of these these smokestacks or if a child is having a hard is is not able to go to school on poor air quality days or if the school that 71% of african americans live in counties in violation of air pollution standards and an african american family making $50,000 a year is more likely to live next to a toxic facility than a white american family making $15,000 a year and we know that um that on average uh if you're living next to a toxic facility you're uh, property values are significantly lower, and property values uh, go directly into funding our school system. So if you have all of these challenges with being in school in the first place, learning in school, and then the school itself doesn't have the level of quality of other schools, then um, studies show that if you're not on grade level by the third grade, you're more likely to enter into the school to prison pipeline. So we mm-hmm. see all of these interconnected, you know, multiplier of issues and then a multiplicity of issues that um, that get exacerbated. And so these are, and that's just one scenario that is an example. When we talk about the gender, gender injustice that already exists, and then on the pipelines, uh, along the line, lines of the pipeline, there's a high uh, rate of sexual assault of indigenous women in particular along those mm-hmm. pipelines. Also, in the around the man camps that are propped up around these oil and gas rigs, there is a high rate of missing and murdered indigenous women. There's a drug mm-hmm. trade that's come up. There's a trafficking that, that happens in those areas. And, um, and just a known um, level that, you know, that you can... When Googled, one can see all the different statistics and stories around this. And so that's just on the driver's side of the continuum. And then when we go on the other side in terms of the impacts, we know that um, that climate change, that, for example, when we talk about the increase in frequency and severity of extreme weather events, that women are more likely to experience violence against women after disasters, um, whether it's yeah, and so we we saw that with the earthquake in Gujarat, the tsunami, Hurricane Katrina for sure, and even the BP oil drilling disaster where I was down there and the the um, the police blotters uh, showed a, a fourfold increase in domestic violence in one particular area I was in in Alabama. And when you look at place after place, it was the same thing. And even though the BP oil drilling disaster wasn't caused by climate change, it also was on the... Uh, on the driver's side of the continuum as well. So anyway, so then um, then when we talk about the, sh- the shifts in agricultural yields, we know that already, for example, 26% of African-American families are food insecure. And when we have shifts in agricultural yields that mean that healthy and nutritious foods are going to be even more um, 
um, um, inaccessible and less affordable, then that just exacerbates what's already a, a bad situation for, for African-American families who too often live in communities where it's easier to get a Dorito or a Cheeto or a Frito than a kiwi or quinoa or anything <laughs> protein or kale. So when we uh, when we see that, then we also see how these various chronic health conditions that are that are causing premature deaths and short shorten our very life expectancy as a people, and then that has made us even more vulnerable to the impacts of uh, of uh, COVID nineteen and has contributed to our high rates of, of mortality. Um, then when we talk about sea level rise, also communities that are less likely to be homeowners, we know that 44% of African-Americans are homeowners versus 75% of white Americans, for example. And so when, when, you know, when you have, when you need to move or even impacted by disasters, all of that, being a homeowner, you know, when you have equity, you have, and not only do you have equity in your home conceivably, but you're also also, some of the aid from FEMA and so forth is directly tied to being a homeowner. And uh, the work of relocation is still emerging and how that's going to be financed and what the mechanisms are going to be. But I wonder who I wonder who wrote those uh, those rules. <laughs> yeah, as I was about to say, we can pretty much rest assured that uh, they were homeowners, at least. <laughs> yeah, it's really something. And so all of these things. Oh, and then finally, I'll just say, too, as it relates to sea level rise, combined with uh, combined with the frequency and severity of extreme weather events is the fact that even after when we, we find we find out that the levee fortification is like so many other things was tied to property values after Hurricane Katrina where they decided to 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 fortify all of these levees in Louisiana um, they 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 used a formula to decide which levees they were going to be fortifying first, and it was based on what the economic impact would be if the levee was overtaken, which literally legislates um, or institutionalizes the uh, the the disregard for the people who are the most vulnerable, um, just literally by definition, by design. Early on in the COVID pandemic, you wrote an article for Color Lines that, that connects the pandemic to climate justice, among other things. Mm-hmm. So you write, centuries of racist policy and practice have shaped the neighborhoods we live in, the air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat, our access to education and justice, and the health care we receive or don't. Layers of harm, generation after generation, alter our bodies at the molecular level, and even the genes we pass on to our children. Those harms, past and present, render us more vulnerable to the coronavirus and also to the longer-term crises caused by climate change. Wow, that's it's really amazing how, how you connect so many dots and wrap so much into this single paragraph. Mm. Um, can, can you talk about the importance of seeing whole systems rather than separating out these interconnected issues in order to envision what you call deep transformative change? Yes, absolutely. Um, so when we have a system that, as I said before, is doing exactly what it was designed to do by those who, as you said, designed it, um, and and when we continue to try to 
tweak a system which at its core has a different intention um, than than what we should be seeking, which is uh, literally liberty and justice for all, then um, then we have to think transformation rather than than reform. Um, right, but we have right. a system that means that the certain people are only more likely to live in certain communities. When you have a system that says that those communities are, by definition, are the communities that are the asthma clusters, the cancer clusters, uh, the communities where the life expectancy is shorter, um, too often by decades, sometimes by almost a lifetime when we talk about infant mortality and, 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 and so forth. So when we talk, when we have a system where before African-Americans were emancipated from slavery, there were policies that enabled uh, white people to be able to access these uh, grants for land, for whether it was for schools or for farming or, or otherwise. So, uh, and when African-Americans were emancipated, not only had they put in uh, this enslaved labor that, that to build a country that was completely uncompensated, but also um, didn't even have the legal rights to be able to write legal wills to pass down their property. And so not only do we have white Americans who, for whom Af- African-Americans were part of the, their actual generational wealth, but then on top of it all, they were given all of these additional aids by, by the government system. And so we, so it's clear why at this point we have uh, white white wealth at $171,000 on average per household, right. African-American wealth at $17,000 per household. And, uh, and then, yeah, then when we layer gender on top mm-hmm. of it all, we have African-American female added households with an average wealth of $5. Wow. So this is, yeah. Yeah. And so if we just continue to try to tweak a system that's doing exactly what it was designed to do in the first place, you know, uh, you know, now 400 years after the transatlantic slave trade, this is where we are. Right. So what is what, what's going to be the increments of change and what 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 uh, what century will there be equality if we don't actually do something transformational right. now? Yeah, I. I talk a lot about the problem with how we've set up environmental issues where, you know, if somebody wants to learn about why we have environmental problems, they're often told to go study science or to go study economics. But Mm -hmm. the best place to start really is American history. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And you can't separate how these systems were built from the problems they've caused. And to to pretend that we can address them without acknowledging and confronting those those things is is so delusional. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, thank you. So I'd like to talk about the NAACP and the roots of the environmental justice movement. Many people consider the birthplace of the environmental justice movement to be in Warren County, North Carolina in 1982 when 500 people were arrested protesting the siting of a toxic waste dump for PCB-laden soil in a county that was predominantly African-American and one of the poorest counties in the state. Among the coalition of community members and civil rights organizations was the NAACP. 
and Reverend Bev, uh, Benjamin Chavez, who later became the executive director of NAACP. Can you talk about the importance of this moment, both for the movement and the NAACP? Yeah, thank you. Um, yes. So one thing that is important about that, that the rise of the movement and its inception is the power of the people and the importance of frontline community leadership. Um, it was never going to be some organization uh, or some entity that's outside of the community looking in and seeing this is wrong and then, you know, organizing a plan and, and, and so forth. It was the power of the people that, that really, mm-hmm. um, unsurface the situation that 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 pushed for the type of change that we need to that they they needed to have and um and that we all need to have and um and and really gave rise to this movement and so it needs to kind of go as it started in terms of the movement and this is why we're always pushing for frontline community leadership and so for us that situation was critical around the the roots of the problem and the depth of the problem and it was critical around the in terms of just like the extreme level of contamination and so forth and the health impacts and so forth and it was also critical in terms of the 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 method and the ethos behind um the solution of the problem um and addressing it and so for us it just means that we uh that we the and, and but it also was um it was also critical in terms of how long it took <laughs> and we often now when I'm doing presentations I often show this kind of four square uh, four image slide of of three uh, of four uh, toxic situations the uh, Flint water crisis the East Chicago Indiana arsenic and lead crisis and the uh, uh, eight Mile, Alabama, Mercaptain oil spill, and then I show the Porter Ranch gas spill that happened, and talk about how you know for each of the other situation it was they were decades, you know, mm-hmm. decades, and still seeking justice. Before the Porter Ranch gas spill, it was literally within a matter of months it was capped. Within a matter of less than a year that they were they were showing they were giving four million dollars in damages to this white wealthier white community mm-hmm, versus mm-hmm. decades decades mm-hmm. and, and hundreds of thousands of dollars at best for these other communities and so right yeah yeah well the the coalition is the coalition around that event was was incredible and you know this kind of gene- genealogy of civil rights within environmental justice mm-hmm. it's it seems to really be you know, NAACP is a is a huge national organization, just like the big environmental organizations. But do you see that its kind of history and valuing and, and ability to work with local groups on the ground changes the way this giant national organization interacts with communities? I do. So for one thing, I mean, one of the things that has, that drew me to the work and has kept me at the NAACP is the fact that we are accountable first and foremost to our frontline community leadership. And so that 
that being the marching orders for for us as a program um, and for the association really does set it apart from from other organizations in that sense. Like we do things because our state and local branches think that they are important. And so that's quite different than if you are setting an agenda and then you're deploying all of these 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 uh chapters to do it like some other um large national organizations. And so but but when we're when we're working in the environmental and climate justice program, for example, we're we're out there in the branches and we're saying like let's let's do a visioning session. What do you want for your community? And then now, well, we can help with political education. We can help with developing a strategy. We can walk alongside you once you have your action plan of what you want to do and help help connect you to resources and so forth. So that model of like it's what it's about what you want for your community, and then we kind of see the patterns of what people are interested in and what they're facing, and then we roll that up into a national agenda that that we that we get resources for on behalf of the units and that we then advocate for at at the federal policy level as well. So if a community might be working on on you know a, a lead crisis in their you know in their backyard and we might be helping them with how to deal with that then at the at the federal level we're working on the lead and copper rule under the mm. under the clean air act and and so forth so there's always kind of a corresponding national agenda but it corresponds with the leadership of our state and local units mm. oh that's that's interesting and it's such so important yeah um yeah always going back to that Yes. Accountability to the communities. Yes. So key. Mm -hmm. So can you, can you talk a bit about your theory of change and the work you're doing and and maybe first describe what a theory of change is and then Mm -hmm. how your theory of change has shifted over time as you've engaged ever more deeply in this work? Yeah. Thank you. So first the theory of change is exactly what the words apply. It's, a, it's, a of, <laughs> it's the theory of how change happens in our world. So for us, and it's interesting too, even when we, when we were kind of like formally crafting our theory of change, there was kind of the difference between the change that's needed and how do we get there. And then there was also kind of models of theories of change that were more granular. But our broader theory of change is rooted in the just transition framework that we work with the Climate Justice Alliance and others facilitated my movement generation. When we when we talk about the just transition framework, we are moving from a society that is rooted in exploitation, domination, extraction, um, enclosure of wealth and power, militarism as a as a vehicle to do it, and um, and, and and so moving from that to what we consider is a living economy um, versus an extractive economy, a living economy that's rooted in principles of caring, cooperation, caring for the sacred, cooperation, um, and really uh, kind of honoring the earth and honoring each other, as well as really rooting it all in deep democracy. And so for us, that means that the work that we do um, in terms of how we get there is around 
visioning, starting with a visioning, visioning of our communities. And um, two is then go, helping with political education so that if a community has a certain vision, then thinking about how they get there is rooted in understanding how it fits in with this broader context. Um, and then three is then working with the community to develop a strategy to, 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 to advance change. And then four is then working with communities on on developing an action plan based on that strategy and their understanding of the political education, um, but rooted in their vision. And then we accompany folks through through um, through ch- achieving that action plan, helping helping along the way with connecting them to informational, technical, financial resources, and so forth. And and so in our overarching work as a national program is 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 around you know all starts and ends with with that with our community vision and then we also work on the types of policy changes that need to shift the system and we also work on narrative narrative shift because too much too often narrative uh uh dictates what's happening and, and from the very beginning in terms of this false narrative of scarcity um, that has pushed so much of this uh, this notion that there's an inverse relationship between my well-being and your well-being. I can only be well if you're not well because there's always mm-hmm. so much to go around. And so mm-hmm. that has pervaded so much of the decision-making and actions that we see and even down to um, you know, our kind of extremely divided political system. It is so based on on that. People feeling threatened, people feeling fear, people feeling feeling, you know, with, so whether it's the immigration um or it's this um notion of black lives matter kind of um meaning that other lives don't. Um so um <laughs> So all of this, and so, so yes, yeah, so a narrative shift is is uh, is a critical piece as well as the policy change, and all again, all rooted in the the vision of our communities. Yeah, oh, awesome. Yeah, and you know, as you could imagine, you know, I'm I'm super interested in narrative and environmental storytelling mm. and, and how we're telling the stories that matter. Um, and so that that really caught my eye when you talked about controlling the narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, can you can you give I don't know maybe an example of sure of of like what does controlling the narrative mean what does that look like Yeah, I'll give an example on the the problem up to until now in terms of some of the ways that the narrative has been controlled and what's resulted in, and then on the other side. So we have everything from you know at the the, the again with African American folks the ways that uh, that the narratives that have been advanced, whether it's um, this, this, the rise of the term super predator or the ways that the black men have been considered to be an enemy or something to be feared or someone to be feared. Um, and the, and how that has led to, in black folks in general, but definitely black men and how that, that led, has led to uh, profiling and then, then led to, to kind of this criminalization as well as police brutality and and what has resulted in state-sponsored violence. I talk about how in the context of Hurricane Katrina, how um, there's this image that I show where it's um, two white, this couple that 
they're white and they're um, in these floodwaters, and then there's African-American male in floodwaters. And it's the same day um, Associated Press is, is the outlet telling the story in both cases. But the caption when it's the two white people is, you know, two residents wade through chesty floodwaters after finding bread and soda in a grocery store. But if <laughs> one of the African-American um, young man, it says a young man wades through chesty floodwaters after looting a grocery store. <laughs> and so that kind of characterization and the difference of it is exactly what leads to this, you know, racial profiling. And then we leads to that criminalization. And then to for for a whole for a group of families on the Danziger Bridge where they were crossing in again, trying to find food, trying to find relatives. They were going back into New Orleans and someone called the police on them and said mm-hmm. that they were you know, probably looking to loot. And so they were unarmed and the police encountered them on the Danziger Bridge and killed some of them as a result. So that racial profiling, that image of those two folks that, you know, seemingly just an image in a newspaper, but when it contributes to a narrative that certain Mm -hmm. people are up to no good. And so we've seen how these days they're talking about living while living while black all the ways. I just, myself, I'm staying at an Airbnb in Florida and I went outside to the, anyway, there's some construction going on. And so they left a package in the front that they were supposed to bring around to the back. Anyway, so I had to go under the construction tape to get the package. And Mm. as I'm walking out, I hear this voice go, may I help you? And it was this lady across the street who, who thought that I was, um, stealing the package. I mean, she goes, (laughs) so, and, uh, the irony was that I had met her like a couple of days ago and had a whole conversation with her and she just didn't remember. It was like, so, but unfortunately, but so the other day there was a whole nother situation with another package and I walked around the neighborhood and I saw the package packages. It had been delivered to another neighbor, but, I, I, I didn't want to kind of walk up and look at them for sure. And B, didn't even want to knock on the people's door because. Mm-hmm. And so I called the pe- person who owns the Airbnb and I'm like, do you know the lady who lives a couple doors down? You know, and then and then there was like a whole long Oh, you know, two hour long process while she was trying to get Jonathan, the real estate agent, all these different, you know, just so that I could get my, my packages that were on this, these door a couple of days. Down. So, and this is the kind of difference in life, you know, that and reality, but that's just, you know, but that could, that could have fatal effects. So if someone saw me skulking around as they mm-hmm. would have characterized it and, um, you know, consider themselves to be defending their property and people have the right to do that. And these, you know, again, with our system, this is what results. And so, so all of this, um, go on. And so all of this on the negative side of narrative, but, and, and, and the importance of why, you know, and then when we talk about environment, this notion of job killing regulations and, and again, that's based on scarcity, assuming that, like the only way that people will be able to work is if they work in these jobs that also are are fatal for other like people killing pollution, you know, as opposed mm-hmm. to job killing regulations. And so, so we as a we as communities are are, are reframing to say it is possible for us to um, have all of the jobs that we want. It is possible for us to have it in the context of clean air, clean water, and what we what we 
do often is to do that by saying that it's already happening. Here's where it's happening, mm. and it's possible for us to take this to scale. Um, and so you see other, other. Oh, go on. Are you gonna say something? Well, how how much of that taking back the narrative is? I mean, I mean, there's, you know, your your example of Hurricane Katrina and and the AP captions on the photos, you know, that kind of ties into this, the myth of, of objective journalism um, and kind of these outside, outside folks who are, who are building a narrative that you're trying to counter. But in some ways, I'm wondering how much you have to, to reformulate the narrative from within um, your own ranks. You know, I'm thinking about you know, early on environmental justice movement you know, there were some uh, communities that were pushing back against some environmental regulations because they were concerned that, that jobs in, in, these, in these communities were going to be reduced or, or go away. And, you know, even today we're seeing, uh, you know, pushback from unions around the shift to, to electric vehicles because there are going to be fewer jobs involved. So, um, what is that? How do you navigate that of like people who are on your side are also buying into some of these narratives? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of what I just said is really helping people to see how how all of it is possible. So that's true for whoever's on whatever side is the importance of that. And so we have, for example, put together the Black Labor Initiative on Just Transition. and. <clears throat> And for that initiative, we work on we work with with the f- the folks who stand to be impacted by these jobs job shifts that will happen. And we say, okay, we we need um, to make sure that we're supporting you who is impacted, um, and that you're in the driver's seat. So it's not it's not something that's happening to you, but you're saying, here's what's yeah. happening you know, in terms of the, the, the needs of the earth and our communities. And here's how I'm going to be impacted if I don't say, all right, this is what I want that's going to allow us to have clean air, clean water, and allow me to have a livelihood at the standard that I need to support my family. And so then both kind of both kind of um, making sure that people are in the driver's seat and we're not just trying to tell them that this is better or this, you know, or whatever, that they are actually determining that for themselves and we're supporting that. But then also um, so that they, they will also then be the, the ones who are able to educate and inform their, their peers as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, so that's definitely what's most important is, is working with working with people to be able to kind of self-actualize uh, whatever mm. enlightenment might come and what the path is. So that, mm. that's a, what I hear you saying is that's, that's the key element of taking back the narrative and controlling the narrative mm. is, is telling that story within your community and having that spread. Is, is that accurate? Yeah, making sure that the community themselves kind of generate the story, like really being in dialogue with the community and have, having that conversation, um, which always, always, uh, arise, always kind of results in in the truth versus versus people kind of parroting what's been told to them. And so for us, right. it's all about an organic process of yeah. Okay, that's awesome. Great. 
So in in 2013, you released a port uh, a report called "And the People Shall Lead," mm-hmm. which which is a great title, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it has a it has a subtitle, "Centralizing Frontline Community Leadership and the Movement Towards a Sustainable Planet." So the re- the report addresses working with big national environmental groups or big greens, as you call them here. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you open the report this way. How often do we hear frontline communities say, we refuse to work with Big Green A until we hear an apology for past wrongs and a commitment to a fundamental change in how they operate? Mm. Or why would I work with Big Green B? They will take credit for the work I do. Or I'll never work with Big Green C again. They have no, res- they have no respect for my culture. At the same time, we often hear mainstream enviros speak with angst. We want to work more with grassroots groups, but we don't know how to engage them. Or we reached out and they didn't respond. (laughs) Or this plant is bad for this community, but they just don't get it. We are trying to help them. (laughs) Um, So that that really cuts to the chase and shines a light on on the history Mm -hmm. of the kind of rocky relationship between white-led and black and brown-led organizations when it comes to environmental justice. What has changed and what hasn't changed since 2013? Yeah, thank you. Oh, that brings back memories. I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so what has changed is that those questions are less happening behind closed doors, um, particularly mm. on the grassroots side. And and also what has also changed is that there have been formations that have been put together to deal directly with this issue, like the building equity and alignment. No, building equity and alignment for impact. What am I? Or like the B. Yep, that's exactly it. Um, the B, Building Equity and Alignment for Impact, which is a combination of of, of uh, kind of these large green organizations, um, frontline grassroots groups, and philanthropy coming together to talk about to talk about these challenges and how do we build more alignment, recognizing that. Yeah, that we we needed <laughs> sorely, and so trying to work through some of those challenges that have been surfaced, um, but recognizing that 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 the uh, the power is in the collaboration, and saying that we we have to do this, we we have to we have to do this, and so that has changed. Recognizing that, and um, and the formations to deal with it, and also certainly. What's also changed is the fact that philanthropy is supporting the need for that shift and supporting the spaces to help to to bridge those challenges. And that philanthropy is also recognizing that continuing to put, you know, millions upon millions of dollars and resources in the hands of uh, only in the hands of big green organizations is actually exacerbating some of those dynamics and challenges. And there's a lot more of an effort to support frontline grassroots groups. So all mm. of those things have changed as well as the urgency of the climate clock. It mm-hmm. hasn't changed, but it's become much more well known and, um, and and therefore, as Martin Luther King says, people are feeling the fierce urgency of now in terms of seeing mm-hmm. the uh, 
you know, the criticalness of kind of getting it together. <laughs> so not to say that in some ways all those things have shifted and 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 some and and the very same things are still being said at the same time. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, right. Yeah. So the problems persist, but at least there's an acknowledgement of them, which is the first step, and some some steps in the right direction. Right. It's a process. <laughs> Always a process. Exactly. <laughs> yes. So so what does anti-racism look like in the environmental movement? Hmm. Yeah, in the environmental movement, it means that it means that that across the board and all the work that we do around the environment, we have to acknowledge and intersectionally address the impacts of of racism. I I famously talk about when I was. Uh, doing a talk for a funder, a funder asked me to do a talk to a group of solar, like solar industry folks. And when I gave my slides, the funder was like, yeah, we just want you to focus on, on, on like solar, you know, and on energy. (laughs) And, um, and so, so I, I said, so after kind of going back and forth with them, I was like, all right, I'm not going to use slides and I'm renaming my talk Black Lives Matter, Energy Democracy and the NAACP Civil Rights Agenda. And after I gave the talk, like people like it was kind of a well, it was uh, an exponentially better received talk than if I had just, you know, I don't know what they, what even just talking about this would mean in the context of, you know, of right. the reality of life. Um, but but but. But the uh, folks in the industry really saw a, a new purpose in what they were doing, seeing, doing a critical mm. purpose in what they were doing, and it felt brought meaning to the work that they do. Um, and so, so, so in some, it's first of all kind of understanding that a how how racism impacts um, how it impacts environment environmental work and environment in the and the environment and be understanding that in that the very same systemic underpinnings that are driving climate change are rooted in racism and so forth and that we and that if we don't kind of address these issues at their root we we won't be able to to address climate change and so that that's another piece that people need to understand can you talk about uh, your work across international borders and how it fits into what you're doing here in the U.S. Ah, sure. Um, yeah. So we, when we first went to, actually, one of the first things that I did when I joined the NAACP, I actually, I was already, I was already going to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change Conference of Parties in Copenhagen before I I joined the staff and so so I ended up going in kind of this hybrid role of kind of starting to join the NAA, starting to be a, a, a staff member of the NAACP and already planning to go as part of this project I'd started uh, through Women of Color United looking at the intersection of gender and climate and um 
at that UN Framework Convention on Climate Change Conference of Parties, we'll call it COP, um, um, that I first encountered the Pan-African Climate Justice Alliance. And and I had been, my work, my work leading to working with the NAACP had been international. That's the work that I do. So I always had that international orientation and seeing how things are connected and so forth. But, and um, in the context of connecting with uh, PACJA and other international groups, we now have a, a memorandum of agreement with PACJA. And um, being a part of the U.S. Climate Action Network, which is part of the Global Climate Action Network, we 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 see the connections between U.S. policies, domestic and quote-unquote foreign policy, and, and everything from at those U.N. climate talks, historically, no matter what administration, the U.S. has played an obstructive role, always wanting to kind of commit as little as possible from a national standpoint, but then that also impacts the level of commitment across the board. If you have one group bringing it down, it kind of waters down the the the, the teeth and the uh, a- aspirations and the ambition in the uh, in the agreement. And so recognizing that we need to be there as U.S. voters to to hold hold the delegation that's there to you in climate talks accountable for for not weighing down because we can't like if we even if we all in the US stopped all of our emissions tomorrow we're still in a in a globe <laughs> and and if we're kind of weighing down the rest of the processes then other people's emissions like yeah we are 25% of the global emissions so it would definitely have a significant impact but we need to we need to, everybody to stop emitting in order for us to as a as a world to advance and so the US has to be there making commitments on its own part, and it has to push for ambition with all the industrialized nations who are driving climate change for us all to be able to survive and thrive. So that's one thing. Another thing, we, um, in our connections with the Pan-African Climate Justice Alliance, we, in our storytelling that we've done since then, we go there for those UN climate talks. We've been, you know, we were in um, Nairobi for those conversations. They've come here, and what's emerged is this the story of our connections are are like the 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 same ways that countries in the global south and um, BIPOC communities in the global north are least responsible for climate change. We all share we all share the fact that we're least responsible, and we all share the fact that we're most impacted, and we all share the fact that we're the least politically. Um, powerful in terms of the decision making that's had. So we have are organizing as a block to say, you know, we as global Afro descendant um, leaders on environmental and climate justice um, want to have a common agenda so that we are we're pushing in concert and building power. Um, as a global majority um, in, in terms of BIPOC folks. And so with that, that means that we, like even as I push for something here or if, if our if our communities and movement here push for like stopping the burning of coal, then at the same time, we're pushing to stop global, uh, you know, exports of coal. And at the same time, um, uh, countries in Sub-Saharan Africa are pushing to stop the global imports of coal. So we really we deal at all sides of that that continuum. Um, 
So those are just some, and then I'll just add, add end with another example of kind of those connections as well. So as we talk about uh, immigration policy, again, mm-hmm. U.S. being 4% of the population with 25% of the emissions that drive climate change, but yet we have these uh, punitive immigration policies so that when people are driven out of their nations because of disaster or because their breadbasket has dried up as a result of our actions on climate, I mean, on, on emissions, but also our kind of imperialist actions and the ways that the structural adjustment programs and others have made have made those um, nations in you know uninhabitable in some cases in some of the communities. Um, then instead of kind of offering refuge and sanctuary, we're putting people in cages. And so while we work on better immigration policies to really so that not just you know, so we're taking responsibility and being accountable for the actions that have driven people from their nations, but at the very least, but ideally just because people need, need, Mm -hmm. they're in need and we, and we have abundance again, uh, pushing back on that false narrative of scarcity. But then at the same time, we're also pushing for the types of policies that allow countries to be self-sufficient and able to address the impacts of climate change or and, and avoid climate change in the first place. So through the U.S. commitments to the UNFCCC and so forth, and um, that, 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 that we're helping the, the, to work with our kind of partners in the global south to be able to have nations where, we, where people don't have to kind of flee in order to survive. And I'll just end with a quote from Warsan Shire, which is, she's a Somali, a Kenyan, a Somali-born Kenyan poet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, she, she says, you have to understand that no one puts their children in the boat unless the water is safer than the land. Wow. Wow. <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's, a, that's a good punctuation punctuation mark yeah and it, it 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 makes me think back to what you were saying earlier about whole systems and, and the absolutely importance importance of of thinking in terms of whole systems so how um how has your work changed since the killing of george floyd and and the blossoming of the movement for black lives mm. yeah for one, it has gotten more. We've been just crushed by by demands. Um, that so that's that's one thing. Um, and 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 not only, I mean, the de- fulfilling of the demands is kind of the least of it in terms of capacity because we for the most part don't even get there but uh but just fielding all of the, the demands as uh there's just so many and trying to to filter out which ones are from people who are pushing are, are trying to mm-hmm. are performative because they, mm-hmm. you know they think it's going to look good which ones are people who are trying to do something because they um because a funder is is mm. saying that they need to do this. What what are folks asking of you? It's everything from wanting, just wanting to quote unquote pick our brains. Like here's what's going on in my company. Like sometimes it's corporations, sometimes it's uh, organizations. Um, here's what's going on in my organization. Here's what I'm planning to do. Can you give me feedback on it? That kind of thing. A lot of times it's wanting 
people wanting us to come and speak, you know, just to kind of help to educate folks. So that's another thing. Um, sometimes it is, sometimes it's wanting us to, to uh, recommend consultants, which is another thing. Um, giving feedback on, on documents, um, and sometimes it seems like it's just that people want to be able to say that they talk to us, you know, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so it's just kind of wanting to have a conversation. Um, mm-hmm. And then a lot of people wanting us to join, whether it's advisory groups or boards or steering committees or all these other things, because they rec- Yeah. So various, various things. A lot of things that are asking for a lot. Of yeah, time. definitely. So. That's there's that. On the other side, though, some some um, some groups have come and they've said, "Oh, now what you see, we see what you were saying all these years ago," um, and are kind of pulling, you know, you know, dusting off some memo that I may have written way back way back when, saying, and and actually taking it seriously now. So that's been interesting. Um, and and so that so so on the positive side we ha- we are there are there are organizations companies and so forth that are making concrete commitments as a result of what has come um yes and so some folks are going beyond the statements and shifting their funding priorities shifting the way that they do the work integrating uh, at least a more anti-racist um, frame into the work that they do. So that kind of enlightenment and action has definitely moved the ball in an important way, um, for sure. So you know, social movements often focus on what's wrong and what needs to change, but sometimes they don't spend enough time imagining what could be and, and getting people excited about those dreams of alternative possibilities. Mm. I've heard you talk about creating eco-communities and locally controlled, sustainable food and energy systems uh, with the potential for communities to become the owners and beneficiaries of local distributed generation and microgrid energy systems. I, I personally really love this kind of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, can Can you talk about some of these specific regenerative, self-reliant, eco-community ideas, and and how you think about what might be called utopian visions. Yeah, definitely. So first, we, uh, as I was talking about before, in terms of the type of societal shifts that we need, we know that the way each and every one of the systems around the commons are designed are have been problematic and not delivering universally what's needed. And at, at best, and then at worst, actually causing harm in the generation and the delivery of of whatever the good is. So when we talk about our energy systems, we're saying we need to shift to to uh more energy efficiency, to clean energy, and we need to have 
a distributed system of doing so. We know that not only, you know, whether we've, well, we've already talked about extensively in terms of the pollution and so forth with the energy sector, but the other thing that's important to, to note is the is the 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 energy companies and the million the billions of dollars in profits that they've made and how they've re, they've invested that in and not only anti-regulatory lobbying and anti-clean energy lobbying but also investing in groups like Alec that push on voter suppression, water privatization, school privatization, prison privatization, etc. And so for us when we talk about the alternative, it is about making sure that there's affordable and accessible energy for all. And it's about making sure that that becomes the focus of the energy sector versus the focus now, which is on, again, enclosure of wealth and power to the tune of billions of dollars. And so so that's why we feel like the whole sector needs to shift. And um, so that's just a little bit of background there. And so we, we've been able to, to, to lift up the stories where people are, are developing, whether it's microgrids or even larger grids. In, for example, on Nav- Navajo Nation, they're replacing the the um, Navajo Generating Station, which was one of the largest, uh, most polluting coal-fired power plants in the country, replacing that. And now they have uh, a a Navajo Nation-owned solar farm um, that that is, you know, creating energy in in ways that don't pollute and that's owned and operated by the Navajo Nation. Um, Yeah, so awesome. Yeah, really awesome. (laughs) And one thing that's exciting to me about the Green New Deal and, and similar ideas that came before it is is the possibility for labor and sustainability to be on the same side of issues rather than constantly to be pitted against one another. Um, what are your thoughts about how labor and justice and environment can can build solidarity as as we move into this new era? Yeah, so so um, we put together this Black Labor Initiative on Just Transition for that very reason, and so that we we are all talking together at the same table with a common agenda. We um, were speaking at the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists meeting a couple of years ago. And when someone asked us about the cold-blooded report, and we spoke on that, and someone raised their hand in the audience, and they were like, well, we're from the United Mine Workers of, <laughs> of America, and we kind of take exception to this cold-blooded framing. And so we really had a, <laughs> an honest uh, chat about that um, and understood where they were coming from and really kind of talked about how we had reached out to them when we put together the Black Labor Initiative on Just Transition a couple of years before. And um, we would love if they considered coming back to the table there. And so they they did. And we really had a, a great conversation that resulted in, I was going literally from that meeting 
to a meeting of the 100% building blocks, um, which is being put together by this 100% renewable network. And, um, and at that, so it, so as, a, as one of the authors of the building blocks, I really pushed hard for us to have a building block that's dedicated to, to labor. Um, and, and it was out of that conversation that I said, we need to have like right alongside the renewable portfolio standards and the energy efficiency standards, we need to have, you know, in just right in tandem uh, demands for high road jobs, for pensions and for health care for transitioning workers. Like that can be like an afterthought and, a, oh, we, we need to do this too. It's not like it's like, these are the things we need to do. Not like we need to do this too. Cause that automatically is like, um, but no, like we, like, these are the things we need to do. No caveat, no qualifier, just like, these are the things, renewable portfolio standard, energy, local hire provision, disadvantaged business enterprise provision, health, you know, healthcare pensions and high road jobs for transitioning workers, like inextricably tied, um, 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 prerequisites for this transition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that goes back to you know what you talked about before of 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 rooting the work mm-hmm. in the dialogue with with multiple groups, multiple people, multiple stakeholders, and finding truth through that negotiation discussion rather than imposing it in some theoretical way on top of yeah. other people. So when the internet started to roll out in the 1990s and 2000s, there was this uh, what was called the digital divide. While you know wealthier, whiter, and more urban communities got access to computers and the internet, poor, poorer communities, more rural communities, communities of color were often not at the negotiating table and left out of the digital revolution. Some people are concerned that the rapid shift to green energy could cause a similar divide. Maybe you know you could maybe call it a green divide. Um, What's your view on on how this concern is playing out, and and what do you see as the key elements to understanding what's going on and what to do about it? Yeah. Um, so before, when I was talking about one of the groups wiping off the uh, dust off of a memo I had written some years ago, mm. it was on that very thing, basically saying that uh, you know how we need to have leadership of frontline groups in the new energy economy and and again similar to what i was just saying about black labor or labor in general that it can't be an afterthought like you can't continue to focus as a solar industry on quote unquote the low hanging fruit or this false notion that a rising tide lifts all boats (laughs) and so Mm -hmm. um that's all Mm -hmm. to say that uh that we need to make sure that we're working with with um with the with the the policies to make sure that we have clean energy as as a, in terms of universal access we have to work make sure that we're working with communities to make sure that they understand what the routes are to be able to access we have to work with these regulatory agencies whether it's FERC or, or the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission or the PUCs and the PSCs to make sure that they are that they are holding these utilities accountable for practices that are pushing us to where we need to go as a society towards um, clean and efficient energy 
So all of that needs to happen in concert to make sure that we don't have that kind of uh, those kind of um, separations in terms of who acts, who's accessing and who's mm-hmm. paying the price. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then that your narrative doesn't get co-opted <laughs> by people yeah. with nefarious um, intent for using that narrative. That's, that's exactly r- ridiculous. Yeah. Well, going back to young Jackie growing up on the south side of Chicago, how how has your thinking changed since then about who you are and and about your relationship to the rest of life on the planet? Mm. One is I see that for one thing I now understand in a way that I understand the relationship between whether I turn my turn the light switch on, you know, this this relationship to this larger world, like just literally the implications of turning my light switch on and where like tracing that back to its roots and then tracing it out to its impacts. Um, mm. Similarly to if I quote unquote throw something away, you know, knowing you know where that will go and what its impacts will be. Like so now just from being that innocent child who who didn't who didn't have a sense of that larger world, now I I see all of that. Um and and see like my my the importance of my individual actions, but then the importance of my actions as a part of a collective and the and the possibilities of a change as a change agent and shifting from a person who kind of life happened to me <laughs> to someone who mm. is actually able to influence what's happening in the in the world in a different way um mm-hmm. So that's a major shift. Also, just like the innocence of childhood, I was aware aware of racism fairly early on because it was a constant refrain with my mom and so forth. Uh, I always we all my brother and I used to kind of talk about being like all the restaurants were banned from <laughs> um, because my mom would get into these altercations with folks. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, it was never true, but that was our, <laughs> we would feel like we, we definitely wouldn't want to go back into that restaurant and eat it. Through the eyes of your children. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then, but then I, I think about now, um, kind of innocent moments like when my brother and I were dancing on the beach in Jamaica and there's a picture that my mom took of it and so you can see my dad looking on while we're dancing and then but then also there were all these other people taking pictures of us and back then it was just like an innocent moment of us dancing and now looking back through sadly jaded eyes I I feel I feel uh a everyone of course assumed that we were you know kids who were Local. living in Jamaica and that, yeah and um b that they felt like they had the right uh 
to take a picture of us and like the notion that we're like in someone's photo album <laughs> or on their mantle from that you know trip to Jamaica you know is uh it feels like now in the context of of racism and the systemic depths of racism and dehumanization and so forth it feels less like this innocent sweet moment and more like a violation in that sense in a way mm. that I you know it's just it's just yeah but not heavily you know what I mean but just like yeah, kind of yeah. what I you think see of, it all. yeah right exactly. yeah the, 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 the color of the light changes on <laughs> on those memories yes exactly but then the other thing is now going now you know having lived near within a 10 mile radius of three coal-fired power plants and having done work with our communities on each and every one of those coal plants and now having each and every one of those coal plants closed for example and knowing that as a result the communities that I grew up in are now breathing cleaner air. Um, the work that we're doing now with the Southside Chicago branch, um, which literally covers the jurisdiction of my old home on creating jobs, on cre on doing stormwater management, all these things, and knowing that that the the the, the dynamics that I dealt with while I was there innocently and uh, you know, are now able to, you know, all the kids in my class who had asthma, the people in our church who had COPD, that bit by bit, the work that we're doing is making a different difference mm -hmm. for their kids and their grandkids. Um, that must be so satisfying. Yeah. To that's connect it to your actual neighborhood. Yes. That's, absolutely. that's amazing. Yeah. Very true. Well, that's really cool. Um, in a, in an interview you did with Bill McKibben, you told him there's so many fissures in our movement, and I I think a lot about how to have these conversations in a way that is forthright but also full of grace. That's a really beautiful way of putting it. Um, can you talk to me a bit more about this tension between directness and grace, and and what that sounds like, and 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 maybe it sounds like maybe this is an ongoing balancing act for you yes definitely and depending on the day and what else to happen that day <laughs> how well that goes um yeah absolutely because like I always try to remind myself that we're all a product of our society and so recognizing that like you know our society is such that you know, that, that, you know, we were raised in a racist, sexist, whatever kind of society and any of our kind, all the things that they, all the ways that it slips through, whether it's through microaggressions or macroaggressions or, or just people not seeing, it's just kind of blindness, myopicism and so forth, that to, to, to work through a system that is literally doing what it was designed to do, to work through the narrative, the dominant narratives that are in our society and somehow rise above all of that and be, you know, be this kind of totally open, totally gracious, totally, you know, uh, 
colorblind or whatever, anti-racist, anti-sexist, anti-whatever. It's 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 a it's a lot. It's a lot to work <laughs> through and work past and work beyond. Mm-hmm. And um and then doing that while raising a child or doing that while like all the different things that, you know, raising a, a parent in hospice or all the different things that 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 occupy our minds at any given moment of any given day. Um, mm. So I try to always keep that in my mind when I'm dealing with someone and I'm feeling the frustration rise or I'm feeling mm. the whatever. Um, I try to. <laughs> um, and so I, and I, but I think that that mindset definitely is one that, especially when, when you're, when you yourself are having to raise a child or have someone in hospice or all the different things. And then on top of it all, you are constantly assaulted by micro and macro aggressions, mm-hmm. like to be able to, 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 to then, to then re- receive all of that and not be kind of, anyway. And then, and then to be able to think about all that, all that that person's going through, like that's like a whole other level of burden in some way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but so it, it takes a lot to, to, to try to be consciously gracious in that way. And it, and it takes a lot to like be able to be consistently gracious in that way. Um, so that's all to say. Um, and and it, <laughs> yeah, that, uh, that it, that it takes a lot of work for sure. And, and I would also just say that the privilege that I have now in this moment of being able to do more of that is because I don't have kids because Mm. tragically both of my parents have passed away and Mm. you know what I mean? So, so I have a lot more space for grace Mm. um, than if I had kind of more, I don't have a partner, you know, like, so all of those things like allow a lot more space for that contemplation and that ability to to be gracious in the midst of a situation that doesn't that doesn't um cater to to the ability to be gracious and when you know that that microaggression that that just that those that article in the newspaper, like every those things that you or you know, with the two people, the two images, um, every one of those things that you experience, when you experience them and know that they're part of this larger system, like knowing that Jan walks out and says to me, uh, you know, may I help you? Knowing that like she could be the person that's responsible for the killing of the next Trayvon Martin, not not responsible, mm-hmm. you know, and so. So in that moment, like I could just be like, you know, you're the reason, you know what I mean? <laughs> but like, it's, mm-hmm. but it's her and all the system that's behind her that drove her to 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 think that I was someone who was dealing that package. And so, mm-hmm. it, it 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 helped. That's also another kind of place of privilege is knowing that I am working on that system, you know. And so I don't have to feel powerless in the face of somebody saying that to me or experiencing that because I know I'm working on that bigger systems change that's going to make it all hopefully better for us all and help to educate someone like a Jan who who assumes that I'm stealing a package, you know. And so when... 
Yeah. So I'm sorry. Hopefully all that makes sense. Um, Totally, totally. And, uh, you know, again, it's just, you know, your words, again, are beautifully succinct, forthright, but also full of grace. You know, how many words is that? Six words. (laughs) But it carries (laughs) carries so much. Like, you know, and I, I feel like you really embody that. And, you know, it's so easy for us to fly in one direction of that or the other. You know, on the one hand, I feel like what most people do is they look away. Mm-hmm. They, they keep the blinders on because it's too painful. Mm. It's too difficult. It 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 feels too impossible to, to confront these things. Mm-hmm. And on the other side, you find people who do confront these things and uh, it's hard to get past the anger and frustration of confronting these things every day yeah. and, and to hold yeah. both of yeah. those things at once without flying mm. to one side of that scale or the other is so challenging. And, and mm-hmm. I, I, I see you, you know, I've known you for several years now and I, I see you do that constantly. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I, I've, I've asked you to bring a quotation to read that's been particularly meaningful in your journey in life. Could you end the show by, by reading what you brought and telling the story of its significance to you? So one that always kind of guides me is from Lily Watson, where she says, if you've come to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you've come because you know and feel that your liberation is bound to mine, then let's walk together. Um, And that quote um, has been one that I've carried ever since I heard it some years ago, decades ago, I would say. And it really gets to the heart of 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 what we how, what how we need to be oriented as a society recognizing our interconnectedness recognizing that unattributed quote uh, that you know if 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 one of us is oppressed none of us are free mm-hmm. um recognizing what i've heard tom goldtooth from the indigenous environmental network says in terms of we're all in this river together that recognizing that we that that um that in the words of Martin Luther King that I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be like all of those interconnectedness quotes really and really strike at the heart of what why I do what I want to do and what and what what the narrative is that I would like to see be universal and the reality in terms of us all seeing our connection to each other really walking together in that connectedness and in in um in radical love really recognizing mm-hmm. that that without really walking together in love we're we're someone's going to fall off of the path and eventually we'll all, we won't have a path to walk on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what, yeah. what is that love that, what is that love that drives you? Um, I think it, I mean, I would say it's just love itself. You know what I mean? So it's, it's love for, mm. love for the earth, love for, for, and that's where I mean that's also where the the grace um comes from as well, going back to that question is that 
you know, I love Jan, even though she accused me of, you know, she implied that in that package. Um, you know, I love the, the 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 gentleman who walks out of that forest, and you know, like I, I feel love for for us all, and that um, and that it is that that false narrative of scarcity and that fear that 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 makes it a privilege um because i don't feel that fear and i don't i don't i embrace the reality of of abundance and reject the myth of of uh of of scarcity and it's a privilege to be able to do that and to be able to feel that that love um and I, and i just want that for for everyone um you know mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. uh so yeah i mean it sounds Whatever it sounds. Um, there's another quote <laughs> that I actually have in my signature from uh, from uh, Che Guevara, where he says it might sound ridiculous, but that a true revol- revolutionary is driven by feelings of love, mm-hmm. and and it does often. Like even when I hear myself say it, it sounds so like, you know, whatever <laughs> milk toast or whatever. But it's the truth. Mm-hmm. It's really, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it, and I want it to be a, a universal truth because it really makes life so much more livable <laughs> and um and it and and if we all if we all um embrace it then we we go from kind of some folks barely surviving to everybody thriving yeah mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah that also reminds together. me of something martin yeah right together mm-hmm. and it also reminds me of of something martin luther king said i, I don't remember the exact words but it was something to the effect I, I can't remember who who he was talking about but it's like you don't need to like them but you need mm. to love them. Yes, exactly. And and that's man, it's it's hard, but it's so yeah, hard. it is. Yeah. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Jackie. It's been an amazing pleasure as always. Thank you. It was a pleasure as well for me. Thank you so much to Jackie Patterson. Go to our website at chrysalispodcast.org to see the quotations Jackie read and check out the links to her writing and other resources related to our conversation. Chrysalis is produced and edited by Gabriela Cordoba Vivas with music by Daniel Rodriguez Vivas, designed by Unai Regrero, and mixing by Juan Garcia. Isabella Nert is our social media producer and assistant editor. Shub Jane is our web developer and assistant editor. And Ariana Lone is our editing intern. If you enjoyed my conversation with Jackie, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also support us by becoming a paid subscriber on Substack. Contact me anytime at chrysalispodcast.org.